might think that my title, The Power of the Presence of Christ, is some kind of fun little cute play on words, and uh, it's not intended to be that. I'm not that creative, and uh, it only occurred to me about halfway through sermon prep what I had done. But All right, so uh, Exodus 33, let me set the stage just a little bit for us as we, uh, as we get to that passage, and as we talk about kind of that theme of the presence of God. Uh, the presence of God is certainly seen all throughout Scripture, uh, from Genesis chapter 1 the whole way through the book of Revelation, right? We know that God is present among His people, and so we celebrate in a unique way the presence of Christ here on earth uh, at the Christmas season. But I want to kind of remind us that God has always been present and active within His creation, and so uh, before we get to Exodus uh, chapter 33, uh, we see that God is present in creation, right? The creator God stepped into this creation by speaking it into existence. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that he formed Adam and Eve, right? That he made them. His presence was uh, there. And in, in, even in Genesis chapter 3, right? At the fall of humanity, we see that God is still present with his creation as he walked among them. And so, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see the importance of God being with his people and being active with his creation. Uh, Exodus 33, let me read just a few verses, and then we're going to pray, and then uh, kind of talk through those and tie those into the New Testament. So, Exodus chapter 33, I'm going to start in uh, verse 7, and uh, read that for us. Exodus 33, 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own door. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that throughout Scripture we see your hand, your active work, God, among your people. I pray this evening as we celebrate the birth of Christ, and as we look through Scripture at this theme of your presence, God, that you would work in our lives, that you would be present here even in this room. God, I pray that you'd be with the families who are here, God. I pray that you'd be with those who are going through difficult times even this evening as we look at your word, God. May your word speak to us. May our hearts be moved, God. May we be responsive and obedient to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in the book of Exodus, right, the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. And we see in the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with it, God would kind of move them around, right? They were not yet into the promised land, and yet God's presence was with them. Uh, God would move and come among his people in this cloud. Now, look at that, Exodus 33, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
We talk a lot of times, and rightfully so, about God's sovereignty over his creation, right? God chose to create. God is entirely holy. God is transcendent. A good theological term is God's transcendence. He's entirely separate from his creation. But at the same time, we want to study the fact that God is intimately involved with his creation. His presence is seen. His presence is felt. It's the theological term eminence, all right? Eminence. God is intimately involved with his creation. We see a picture of that here, right? They would worship God as a transcendent creator God, but Moses would speak to God face to face. God's presence intimately involved with his creation. Uh, A mentor of mine would call this the localized presence of God. We see it really throughout the Old Testament. As I said, in the book of Genesis, God is there. He's with Adam and Eve. We see God walking with Abraham. We see God being present with Noah, right, and through the flood. We see God being present with David. If you remember Psalm 139, David says, you know, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The prophets reflected on the presence of God, right? We just as a church went through the book of Amos, and we saw that God was aware of what was happening among his people. God is present and active among his people. And that's really the first point I want to talk about tonight. Point one is just that God has always been present in his creation. We celebrate that fact. We recognize that fact within scripture that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, every book talks about the presence of God. And yet we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. So if you're kind of tracing this through history, we see glimpses of it. We see this tent of meeting here in Exodus 33. We see uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament where it would be this temporary place where the high priest would go in and meet with God. And then eventually we see God's presence being felt and seen in the temple, right? And so the temple was built under King Solomon. You can read more about that as you look at uh, like 2 Chronicles talks about that. But the anointing of the temple and the significance of that is that God's presence had a place to dwell on earth in the temple. Right? And so we celebrate that, we recognize that, we understand that God has always been present in his people or with his people. But we know that the Old Testament was really a time of preparation, that in the Old Testament we see these glimpses of there being something more. Right, And so tonight what we celebrate is the fact that God isn't just present through a cloud, but that God's presence came down to us. So, Uh, Look now to John chapter 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John chapter 1 as well. John chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Uh, Paul talks about this time in Galatians chapter 4. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. And so that's what we get together to celebrate this evening on Christmas Eve, is the fact that the fullness of time had come. And we look back about 2,000 years to the birth of Christ And the significance of that in our lives. John chapter 1, verse 14. That's one of my favorite verses for scripture, uh, for for Christmas time. Uh, Just uh, significant, right? The the importance of this. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we read about in Luke chapter 2. The importance of the baby that was born in a manger 
the Word becoming flesh. Now, let's talk through a couple aspects of this, really, as we make a second point. Yes, God is present in His creation, but point number two, the presence of Christ changes everything. The presence of Christ changes everything. When we see this in John's gospel, the importance of that means that the world will never be the same. The word became flesh. What is, what is the word? Well, we're going to read together, actually, a little bit of this later after, uh, later in the service here. But verse 1, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know that the Word is a reference to Jesus himself and the importance of the Word coming down to dwell among us. We see that Jesus is God. We know that other authors of Scripture affirm this in what they say throughout the New Testament. Let me read a couple of those for you. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that Jesus was the very form of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says again that Jesus is the form of God. Colossians chapter 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. John 8, later in this gospel, Jesus calls himself the I Am, which is a reference to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and the I Am calling Moses to go to the nation of Egypt and let God's people be released. Jesus calls himself the great I Am. Even the Jews, right? knew that Jesus was claiming to be God by the things that he said. In John chapter 10, they wanted to kill Jesus. Why did they want to kill him? They said, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. And in John chapter 1 here, we know that Jesus is the Word. We also see, though, in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. What does that mean, the, the Word became flesh? Well, we just read about that in our corporate time of prayer together, that although Jesus took on flesh, he did not take on the sin nature. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, this is the most amazing event in all of history, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, all right, so all-powerful, present everywhere, infinitely holy, entirely holy, the Son of God took on a human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time. In one person. Tonight we celebrate the fact that God came down to us taking on human flesh. He is now what uh, some would call the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And also we see in John chapter 1, 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now some of you might be reading from another translation that word dwelt is actually the word tabernacle, right? And so we looked in Exodus chapter 33 that Moses would meet with God, right? And this temporary dwelling and the presence of God would come. Now we see in John chapter 1, the word God became flesh, took on humanity, right? And tabernacled among us. The importance and the significance, I think, in the first century as they would have read that, they would have understood the fact that God is now back among his people. If you think of the timeline of the nation of Israel and the significance of God interacting with his people, we see that now that the fullness of time has come, that God is tabernacling among his people. We no longer need to meet with God in a tent or in a building. God is now among his people. We don't wait for the cloud of the presence of God to be able to worship him. 
we recognize that Jesus has come, that he has descended to us. And that act of humility, right, that act of humility changes everything. So God's always been present. The presence of Jesus or the birth of Jesus changes everything. But I want to kind of take a little side road here and say we would be uh, missing something if we didn't say, but, but why did Jesus have to come? Right? Why did Jesus have to come? For salvation to be offered, if God was going to offer salvation, it was really only one way that he could do that. And so uh, this uh, last few months, or sorry, last few weeks, we've been celebrating Advent, right? This idea of arrival, right? The idea of the coming of Christ. And one of the uh, resources that we had kind of sent out through our newsletter was a resource uh, that was called Come Let Us Adore Him. And on December 5th, there was a reading that I thought was particularly just helpful in processing through the significance of Christ's coming. So I want to not read the entire thing to you, but just uh, a few of the, the statements that the author gave from that book, Come Let Us Adore Him, talking about the significance of why did Jesus come? Why did the baby come in the manger? Uh, ultimately, we know that it's not just to be among us, but it's to do something really on our behalf that salvation would be offered. So listen to what the author has to say as I read just a few of the lines from that. The incarnation of Jesus Christ pointedly preaches our inescapable need for radical, personal, and moral rescue and forgiveness. He goes on to say one of the primary purposes of the incarnation of Jesus is to humble each and every one of us. He says, let me say it this way, only when you accept the very, very bad news of Jesus' birth will you then be excited about his very, very good news. Good news is only good news when people who know that they need good news. He says, Jesus' birth is is both the worst and the best news ever, and understanding both will change your life forever. It is humbling to accept that God came in the person of Jesus— to live the way that we were created to live, but would never live, to die the death that each of us deserves to die, and to rise out of the tomb, defeating sin and death, because there was simply no other way. God knew that our condition was so desperately grave that he was willing to go to this extent to reach and to rescue us. Ponder the fact that God was willing to control the events of world history, to bring this world to the place where conditions were right for Jesus to come, simply because we have no power whatsoever to help ourselves out of this desperate state. Humanity was so incredibly messed up that there was only one solution for us, which is God himself. It says the reason for the birth of Jesus, such gloriously wonderful news, is that in his birth, God offered you and me the only solution to the fundamental brokenness of sin, That is the core tragedy of every one of our lives. So confessing our brokenness is the only way we will ever fully understand and celebrate the birth of the Messiah, who is Jesus. The author concludes, at Christmas, we celebrate a God who is gracious in his abundant love and patient mercy. He chose to give grace to those who could never deserve his favor. He chose to rescue those who could never help themselves. He chose to forgive those who had rebelled again and again. He chose not to leave us in our blindness, but to open our eyes. He chose to empower the unable. Because he chose all these things, he chose to send his son. 
the glory of the birth of Jesus becomes even more glorious when it is seen through the humbling lens of the desperate condition that was the reason for his coming. Accept the very bad news of Christmas today so that you can celebrate even more joyfully. It's wonderfully good news. I thought that was a powerful reminder. Right? It reminds me of a, a Christmas song that we sing, and even some of the songs, right? We sing about the joy that we have, but we also sing about the condition that the world is in, right? As a result of our sin, as a result of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, a song that's kind of becoming one of my favorite, I guess. I don't know what that says about me, but hopefully it's a good uh, theological song, if nothing else. But Oh Holy Night. Right? I know many of you are familiar with that, but let me just read. I'm not going to sing. Just let me read. Right? I'll try not to sing it as I read it. Let's just listen to this first verse. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the wor- world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There's a reason for his coming, right? Fall on your knees, hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. We truly let that sink in. The importance of why Jesus had to come, if salvation were to be offered, God himself had to step into his creation. And so we celebrate, but we, we celebrate the fact, right, in the midst of our sorrow and despair and the devastating effects of sin, we celebrate the fact that Christ has come. But we also weep because of that, because we recognize our sin. The significance of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall isn't just seen in the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden and those consequences that were felt, but they are seen in the fact that God himself had to step into his creation in order to provide a way of salvation. They are seen ultimately, not just in the manger, but in the cross, in the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf, and ultimately the victory he won over death with his resurrection. And so as we celebrate the presence of Christ and recognize that in the Old Testament, we also recognize the reason why Jesus came and how that changed everything. However, we don't stop there, right? We're still here, even though we recognize the fact that Christ has come. And so really the third point is this idea that those who believe will be present with Christ in eternity. Right? We, we have hope beyond this world. So I know you're in the Gospel of John already. Flip to chapter 14, just as some encouragement to you. John chapter 14, we looked at John 1, 14. Now we want to look at John 14, 1. These are some words of Jesus that he spoke really just hours before he would be betrayed, before he'd be arrested, put on trial, ultimately crucified on our behalf, as we just talked about. Christ is encouraging his disciples with these words, right? They had seen the coming of Christ already. They knew that the Messiah was there, but the Messiah was getting ready to be betrayed and to be killed and to ultimately then um, leave them, right? And he wants to encourage them. It's always been really uh, just significant in my mind to know that as Jesus was facing everything that was to come, that he still had his disciples in mind and wanted to encourage them 
in the midst of their maybe confusion. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, so, what have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He goes on to say that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. So we see that during this Advent season, right, we celebrate the arrival of Christ, but we also, we are in a bit of a waiting as well as we anticipate the second coming of our Savior. But in that anticipation, we don't do that without hope, right? We have assurance because of what Christ has said that he will come back, right? That he said, I am preparing a place, and if I'm preparing a place, I'm going to come back so that you may be where I am. We get to spend eternity with Christ, those of us who believe. That should give us reason to rejoice. We get a picture of this as well in Revelation chapter 21. Let me read this for you, right? This, this hope that we have, because we have this nagging feeling something's not right. Right? Even though we believe in Christ, there is still pain and sorrow and suffering. And there's got to be a time when God makes all those things right as well, that the application of the work on the cross right, affects all of creation. And so Revelation chapter 21, let me just read a few verses for you. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. There's that presence of God. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. On to verse 22. Listen to this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We long for a time when we're in the presence of God, and when He returns, we will be with Him in the place that He has prepared for us. And there's no need for a temple where He just comes down sometimes, but we will be with Him. And the temple is no more because He is there, His very presence is there. And so, as we celebrate the fact that Christ has come, we also long for the presence of Christ, and we understand that we will be with him for eternity. Now, we could stop there. That's a good, you know, good message, good amount of time, 20 minutes, we're good to go. But the interesting thing is that even though we have hope, knowing that the future, Christ is coming back, we still say, okay, but in the presence, do we have more than hope? Well, thankfully, we do, right? The presence of Jesus is available even today. So, still in John chapter 14, we see that Jesus continues to teach his disciples, and he gives them not just hope for the future, but hope for them that very day, and that's hope for us as well. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17 in John chapter 14. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, 
for he dwells with you and will be with you. Jesus goes on in John 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16 to talk about the significance of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, rest assured, the Spirit is seen all throughout Scripture, but even as we talked about, there's something unique about the coming of Jesus. There's something unique about the ministry of the Holy Spirit during this time. Christ actually says at one point, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, the helper, the, the, the Spirit will come and be with you. Now, the Spirit testifies of Christ, right? Testifies of the work of Christ in our lives. But we see the significance that Christ said, take comfort in the fact that I will send the Comforter. The Father and I will send the Spirit to you that he will be with you. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, the you in that passage is plural, meaning the church. Do you not know, church, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? But later in that book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That, the, the Greek there, the word you, is actually singular. So God dwells in his people, the Spirit, but the Spirit also indwells the believer. Why is that indwelling there? Well, that indwelling is to point us to the person and work of Christ. Through the power of his word, right, to make known to us the things of God that we may walk in obedience and that we may feel the presence of God in our lives. This is not a temporary indwelling in a cloud like in the Old Testament. This is a permanent indwelling of the spirit in the life of the believer. So you say, well, why is that important? Well, we have a book on the table back there called Gentle and Lowly. And the author of that book in one of the chapters speaks about the significance of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and what that does. And so uh, just a brief couple sentences that I thought were really helpful. The author says, The Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us, not just heard but seen, not, but, not just seen but felt, not just felt but enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus' heart and moves it just from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. Now, I know some of you are starting to shift nervously in your seat, okay, a little bit. We're not advocating for something based just on a feeling or based on an experience, right? What we do here and what we celebrate is the work of Christ and the reality of God's word and the doctrine that comes out of that. But in understanding that, right, we recognize the fact that it's not just something that we think about, but the Christian life is something that we experience, and primarily that's through the work of God's Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives individually and corporately. The author sums it up this way that I thought was really helpful. It's one thing to hear He loves you. It's another thing to feel His love. How do we feel his love? Well, it's through his word he's given us, through the interaction and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As way of illustration, and I probably shouldn't share this, but I will. It's a good example of my family. I don't like when speakers use their family in bad illustrations, but it came to my mind. So if it's helpful, great. If not, I apologize to my family and to you. This past weekend, my wife and oldest daughter were on a trip. 
this was great. They were gone for a couple nights. Good for them. They had a nice time. Um, the challenge was we have a three-year-old at home uh, who understood, right, that mom loves her, but was experiencing separation from mom, right? And so, you know, FaceTime can be helpful. Talking on the phone can be helpful. The reassurance of dad that mom's coming back can be helpful. But there's something about, right, that reuniting on Monday afternoon, right? Hey, if you go down for a nap, when you wake up, guess who's going to be here? Mom, right? Like nothing replaces that, right? So God's word, right? We don't take away from the significance of God's word. We see the spirit of God working through our hearts and our lives that we may experience God on a daily basis through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a longing for, hopefully, being in the presence of Christ, and the Spirit helps us and helps us remember that that is to come. So my encouragement to you this evening, right, is to just remember the significance of the presence of God in our lives. Let us remember that Christ came on a mission, and that mission was to rescue us, right, to allow us to be in a place where we could actually be in the right relationship and in fellowship with God. We have the hope as well of spending eternity with him for those who believe, and he has not left us on our own. He has given us his spirit. And so as we walk through this Christian life as a church, as individuals, right, may we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God to transform our lives for the glory of God. Amen? Now, one little three-minute add-on. Everywhere that I just talked about in Scripture, that we talked about the presence of God, there's another concept that I understand is its own sermon in and of itself. But we talk a lot about God's glory, right? Here at CCF. And, and hopefully as Christians... We, we want God to be glorified in our lives. Well, all throughout these passages, as I was studying the presence of God for tonight, this theme of glory just kept coming up. It's like God's presence is there, God's glory is there. God's presence is there, God's glory is there. God's presence is there, God's glory is there. And so even as we say, I want God to be glorified, what do we necessarily even mean by that, right? We want God to be exalted. We want God to be lifted high. But if you give me just three minutes, right? Exodus 33. We see Moses meeting with God face-to-face as he was talking to a friend. Later in that chapter in Exodus 33, I'll just read it for you. You don't need to turn there. Verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, show mercy to whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, and while my glory passes by, by I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I pass by. So in the context of God's presence, we see God's glory. John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that together, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only one, only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
I mentioned John 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 through 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify Christ. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In Revelation 21, talks about the new city, right? The new Jerusalem. No need for the temple. Verse 23, and the city has no need for a sun or, or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the land. We see when we have the presence of God, we have the glory of God on display. Now you might say, well, what, what is the glory of God? A couple definitions from commentators, and then I'll pray for us. One says it this way, God's glory encompasses the greatness, the beauty, and the perfection of all that he is. Another says that it's a reference to the unapproachable and mighty manifestation of the immediate presence of God. It's inexpressible beauty and majesty, absolutely pure and terrifying holiness, confronting the sinfulness of humanity. John Piper, as he attempts to explain it, and in the article I read, he said it's just a difficult concept, but he said Isaiah chapter 3, or sorry, Isaiah chapter 6, it's called Isaiah when Isaiah sings the throne room of God. And if you're familiar with this passage, there's angels flying around, right? What a tremendous sight, right? In God's presence, Isaiah 6, the angels cry to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in way of definition, he says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of God's holiness. It's the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. The glory of God is the holiness, holiness of God made manifest. So if we want to celebrate who God is, I think we need to be in the presence of God, right? And how do we do that? Through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Word, right? Being in God's presence. If we want to make much of God as sovereign over all of creation, we have to also understand that he came to us, right? The eminence of God, the transcendence of God. He came to us in Jesus, right? Taking on human flesh. We recognize both the greatness of God as sovereign or transcendent. We also recognize the greatness of God in his intimate work within this creation, his eminence or his presence. And in doing so, we can testify to the glory of God.